Hello and welcome to the Good Robot Andy's Season 5, Episode 10. My name is Andy Balaam and this is... Andy Cockerell. And I'm barely containing my giggling because Andy's <laughs> been doing uh, impressions of... Um, oh, the name of the film's gone out of my head. Uh, oh, A Science of the Lambs? No, um, uh, the film you were just doing, with uh, going up to 11. Oh, I was doing Nigel Tufnell. Yeah. <laughs> All the way up, all the way up. <laughs> What's the film called? Uh, this is Spinal Tap. Oh, this is Spinal Tap. Yeah, of course yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, em- a great film. it's just so quotable. Yeah. I mean, I must so say, quotable. I did enjoy the film, but I, if I had to rate it, I would say I enjoy you doing impressions of it just a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> all the way up, all the way up. <laughs> so we said, one louder, one louder. I think... <laughs> Uh, D minor is the saddest of all chords. <laughs> Brilliant. It's good. It's good. You should watch it, listener. I'm sure you, you have. should. I'm sure you've seen it, but if you haven't, you should watch it because the first time I saw it from the because I didn't know any of the actors, it was only until Patrick McNee arrived in the film that I thought, "Hang on a second, that's Patrick McNee. This isn't a real documentary." <laughs> And then just went and then just went with it because it was just so utterly brilliant. Oh, it's great. It's yeah, great. I said it was season five, episode ten, didn't I? Uh, you yeah. did. Yeah. Is that correct? So, that is correct. Uh, okay. Assuming that I got the, the episode number of the last one correct. Um, <laughs> and we're, you're in the middle of a very special season. Well, you're not. You're nearly at the end of a very special season, season five, where we do a countdown of the best horror of the twentieth century. Yes. According to one man. Uh, mostly one man, which is me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, with, I mean, there's some controversy, listener. So that, that after we've done the countdown, we'll do like a, we'll do a wash up. We'll do a retrospective. We will. Yes. Uh, that's a good word for it, actually. A wash up. A wash up. Yeah. I like that. Um, how would Arnold Schwarzenegger <coughs> say that? Wash up. Yeah. No, no. We'll would, would he say that? <laughs> how would he say wash up? You must wash up. <laughs> Yeah, that. Uh, but today we're doing um, numbers four and three. So we've slowed down a bit as we got near the top. Um, we're doing numbers four and three of the best horror films of the 20th century. Yes. So we should we plunge straight in with number four? Well, Are you going to give me a clue? Oh, no, we're not. Are we going to do some... Let's do some feedback. Some, oh, you're right. Let's do, let's some, do some feedback. feedback. Um, cast your mind back. I found some feedback that we, we forgot to read out when I was... Yeah. Going through our thread, um, cast your mind back to season five, season episode, five four. episode four, which was back in September. Wow, that was a long time ago. A long time ago. So somebody called Darkly posted, "Audition mm-hmm. is awesome." Um, so the audition is a film that we talked about. I presume was that was that the one that uh, was in that episode? Presumably, I don't know. I think it must have been. Yeah. So he said, "Audition is awesome." So Shame. famous, famously extreme. <clears throat> Famously very extreme, yeah. And he said, uh, Shame Dumplings was 2004. If you haven't seen it, you should. Now, that is a reference to you saying yeah. that you had audition as a double pack with another film. That's right. Uh, and you couldn't name it, but he has named it as Dumplings. Yeah, so I, could, I, yeah. I also couldn't talk about what's in it because it's so, its entire subject matter is so unsuitable for broadcasts. <laughs> So shocking. Just so the shocking, concept yeah. is so shocking that I don't want to explain it to you. Okay. Um, but 
I looked That's it up. Not to actually. say that it's I think a, it's morally bad. I just don't want yeah. to talk about it. <laughs> it's a Chinese horror movie. Oh, it's a Hong Kong horror movie. Right. Um, I think I thought it was good, but it is extreme is very much a suitable word for it. But in a case of life imitating art, there are now um, people using... Um, I don't even know if I can say it on our podcast, actually. But discarded body tissue on their faces. Right. Yeah. So, you know, dumplings now doesn't really seem like a flight of fancy or a particularly extreme idea. It just seems yeah. like, oh, hey, this is something that people do now. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. it's. I, I think maybe it's good. It's certainly shocking. Okay, well, it's not on the list because it was in 2004. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I so. don't know whether it's a candidate to be on the list anyway, but there you go. Mm, so yeah, anyway, thank you, Darkly, for um, reminding yes. me um, both on the blog and also, I believe, on Mastodon. Oh, there we go. Um, of the name of that film, Dumplings. And we've, 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 we should also read out some of Cathy's, um, uh, what is now becoming her director's cut <laughs> Uh, comment. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we'll do the, uh, the the parts that we edited out of the previous episode. Yes, exactly. I don't know how far we got with the last one, actually. So she says, I'm afraid I haven't seen Event Horizon, so I can't offer a rant about that. Oh, that's a shame. Okay. <laughs> that is a shame. But Cathy, rest assured that it's um, derivative it's, and boring. It's not boring, it is derivative. <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, she no, we, made a I noise. We, when we addressed we addressed the drive-by snort. Right, 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 right. She said she loved being reminded of the Matrix. She, she thinks she only saw it three times at the cinema because I mentioned I'd seen it four times at the cinema. Okay. So I've surpassed her there. Um, she said it's amazing, and she said she simultaneously made the exact same rather contemptuous noise <laughs> as I did when you mentioned <laughs> the air quotes sequel. Did they make sequels to the Matrix? Um, I am not aware of them. Is it raining? I hadn't noticed. It's just a refreshing dampness in the air. <laughs> That's all it is, yeah. Uh, and what else have we got here? Oh, yes, you said she saw five minutes of an American werewolf in London and definitely didn't get it. Didn't get it? What do you mean? Yeah, you, you mean? Need to there's, wa- n- there's nothing to get. Well, she says maybe need to watch. I would suggest if yes. you want to get a film, I you think probably you maybe do watch need it. to watch. Yes. <laughs> Uh, should we keep she, the last bit for, for the next for the final okay. episode okay because I think it's my quite fav- funny my favourite bit I think it's funny so we'll, yeah. we'll keep that one for the final episode <laughs> do we want to do a round up of the movies so far oh oh, oh, oh yeah let's do that let's have do you that. got right. have you got your one word um, I, well so long as the listener is ready for like awkward, an awkward pause followed by a not very good one word review yeah, then I'm okay. ready we don't have an emergency broadcast system so it's not going to cut in <laughs> Over dead air. <laughs> no. no. And I won't edit it out because editing is not my style. Editing is not your bag, baby. It's not my bag. So, at number 30 is Gremlins. Um, commercial. Okay. Uh, number 29 is Near Dark. Haven't seen it. Number 28 is Altered States. Haven't seen it. Number 27 is Hellraiser. Um, what did I say about that? It's all right. I'm going to do the rest of these in the style of Stephen Toast from Toast of London. That's not surely it's all right. Can't be my. Um, what I, what's my word for Hellraiser? Do, can I say iconic? You can. Okay. Although you may say that again. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, number 26, The Blair Witch Project. Um, very similitudinous. Ooh, that's good. What does that mean? It means fe- <laughs> real feeling. I couldn't find another word that's a single word. That I means like it. It, it feels real. Yeah, that's good, yeah. At number 25, Jacob's Ladder. Creepy. Yeah. 24, Nosferatu. Classic. Also, maybe haven't seen it, can't remember. Uh, 23, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Influential. Number 22, The Wicker Man. Scary. Number 21, Carrie. Um, uh, didn't fulfil its potential. Number 20, Silence of the Lambs. I know that's not a single word. Um, what did I have for that? Relatable. Relatable. Yeah. Relatable. No, number 19, Audition. <laughs> Extreme. Number 18, Ring. Um, refreshing. Yes. That's better than refre- fresh, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> refreshing is what I meant. Uh, number 17, Psycho. Um, genre defining, that's two words. Yeah, hyphenated. No, it's okay. Hyphenated. Uh, hyphenated. Uh, number 16, The Fly. Fun. Yeah. Number 15, Event Horizon. Derivative. Boring. Number 14, <laughs> An American Werewolf in London. <laughs> We're just talking uh, over you now. Teen. What did you say to that one? Teen. Hmm. Number 13, The Sixth Sense. Um, uh, lonely. Yeah, sad and lonely. Number 12, The Omen. Mm, scary Children? Yeah. That's two uh, words. It's okay. Uh, number 11, Don't Look Now. Haven't seen it. Number 10, The Haunting. Creaky. Number 9, Evil Dead 2. Joyous. Come on, groovy. <laughs> groovy. Oh, man. you gotta, you got to set me up for that I've one. I've got to queue you up for that one. <laughs> Evil Dead 2. Groovy. That's it. That's what we're looking for. Can Groovy. we do it a little bit more like this? Oh, hang on. Uh, I need to see it. I need to see the screen. Like what? No, no. You need to look <laughs> at the camera. I didn't mean that. I just meant... Oh. I just meant like as if I was like a director directing myself. Oh, I see. That's saying I should do it the way you do it. Well, you need to do the, the whole montage of... <laughs> Then look at the camera and say, "Kuchunk movie." Number eight, Rosemary's Baby. Um, a paranoid. Mm. Number seven, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Haven't seen it. Number six, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Uh, riveting. Yeah. Uh, number five. Night of the Living Dead. Uh, meaningful. Yeah, that's good. Allegorical, meaningful. Which leads us to number four. Number All right. four. Okay, so are you going to give me a clue? I shall, yes. Go for it. Uh, so this is a 1982 American science fiction horror film. Uh, alien. It's not Alien. It's a little bit later than Alien. Oh, right. Is it Alien yes. before that? Yes. Wow. Yeah. 1982. I think, I think Alien was 78. Science fiction horror film. Yes. 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 I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Okay. Uh, then I shall fill you in on the blank. It is The Thing. The Thing? Yes. I'm pretty sure I've seen it, but I remember very little about it. Okay. Uh, so this was directed by John Carpenter. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, an icon of 80s and early 90s horror, actually 70s, 80s and 90s uh, American horror movies, um, written by Bill yeah. Lancaster. What's the um, vampire <coughs> one that I've seen by John Carpenter? I don't know. He's made uh, Halloween. He made Halloween. Uh, no, vampires. Like vampires oh, in the vampires. Wild West. Yeah, there is one called Vampires with James Bond. Oh, it's just called Vampires, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which is okay, that's ni- okay. late 90s. Bit boring. It's not his best. Okay. No, not his best. And he also made, he made, did he not make the film that is sampled in that Gorillaz track? Oof. No, I don't think he did, actually. I think that's one of the Living Dead films. Ignore me, ignore me. Okay. Um, so this is based on the 1938 John W. Campbell Jr. novella, who goes there? Question mark. <laughs> I think the thing's probably a better title. I think it is a better title. It tells the story of a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter the eponymous thing. I'm doing air quotes. I can see that. A parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates, then imitates other organisms. So the group is overcome by paranoia and conflict as they learn that they can no longer trust each other and that any one of them could be the thing. Mm-hmm. I think there have been a number of episodes of things like... The Thing. Black Mirror or Doctor mm. Who. or I think, there's, I, I think this storyline has been stolen a lot. I think it has. I think that it is very... It's still timely today in mm-hmm. terms of you can look at the person next to you, but you don't actually know if they're who you think they are. Right. Um, so the film stars Kurt Russell who would uh, return to make uh, Big Trouble in Little China for, um, for John Carpenter, which is a very enjoyable romp, sci-fi, well, sort of sci-fi fantasy romp. Um, so he plays the team's helicopter pilot. It also features uh, Wilfred Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, who would also return to work with Carpenter in a movie called They Live. Richard Dysart. Is that quite recent, They Live? No, it's uh, They Live is late 80s, early 90s. Oh. It's terrific. It's Classic really films with punctuation in the titles. Yeah, They Live is amazing. It's um well, we'll go we'll go into that later, okay. but um also stars Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Monsieur, Donald Moffat, Joe uh, Joel Polis and Thomas Waits, not Tom Waits, but Thomas Waits in supporting roles. Um, so production began in the mid 70s <clears throat> and it went through several directors and writers each with different ideas filming lasted roughly 12 weeks uh, took place on refrigerated sets in Los Angeles mm. as well as on location in Juneau, Alaska wow. and Stewart, British Columbia so you know, shooting in properly cold areas there uh, refrigerated on- sets Yes, yeah, that's interesting. So the, the there is another film in the um, top thirty that features refrigerated sets, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid talking about that since. Yeah, I, I know it's, it's the, coming. Yeah, of the film's fifteen million budget, one point five million was spent on was spent on Rob Bottin's creature effects, which are utterly brilliant. A mixture of chemicals, food products, rubber, and mechanical parts turned by his large team into an alien capable of taking on any form. So what kind of thing happens that you, that you see on the special effects? Oh, it's incredible. So um, I'm trying to think 
what's the first creature that we see? I think it might be one of the dogs. So they have um, huskies mm-hmm. on site. And it's actually... <clears throat> we're going to spoil it now, listener. Yeah, it's is a spoilerific it, podcast. This is a spoilerific podcast. So the, the thing arrives at the American base in the form of a husky that has been running across the ice and the snow. From, oh, you know what? This rings a bell. Mm, I'm sure okay. I've seen it. From an unknown... They don't, they don't know where it's come from initially. <clears throat> but just that it's it's been running across the snow, sorry, <clears throat> and it's being chased by or pursued by a helicopter. Um, a helicopter is taking shots at it using a high-powered rifle. They keep missing. Um, then the helicopter, something happens to them. Helicopter blows up. The dog survives, uh, but it turns out the dog is the thing. Mm-hmm. So the fir- I think the first time they encounter it is uh, it attacks the other dogs in the dog pound and okay, tries they, to... Assi- and like, tries to, They take it in and it... Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, and tries to assimilate the other dogs. And that mm-hmm. is an incredible piece of like creature effects, mm-hmm. physical effects, really unsettling, grooey-looking stuff that just looks utterly out of this world and utterly alien, which is, you know, what it's supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so they catch it sort of mid-transformation. Um, uh, so that's the first time we see that. We then, I think one of the greatest effects in it is when um, one of the one of the guys in the group has what appears to be a heart attack. And whilst they are performing, using a defibrillator on him, his chest opens up into a kind of pair of jaws. <laughs> um, there's another good one with a spider. So so the, the thing kind of like one of its head falls off kind of thing. Falls on the floor, then it grows spider legs and crawls along the floor. <laughs> yeah, I think that rings a bell too. To which one of the one of the um one of the crew uh, utters an expletive line that is utterly beautifully <laughs> delivered, which I can't say on this podcast. But it's very, very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, this is a film that it takes itself very seriously, um, like so many movies. I think, you know, probably with the exception of The Evil Dead, or The Evil mm-hmm. Dead 2, you know, which is most definitely winking at the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes itself very seriously, but it is yeah, also very... John yeah. Carpenter always takes himself seriously, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think there's probably... Um, I think maybe only um, there's a movie called Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase, which is kind no, of light-hearted and not very good. No, it's not good. It's not good. I think the only <laughs> yeah. So the thing takes itself seriously, but it is funny. So it does have funny lines in it that sort of right. alleviate the tension because right, the right, tension right. is you know pretty thick. Mm-hmm. It's pretty thick. So nobody knows who anybody else is. Um, uh, they are going to do a test to test people's blood because there are there are samples of everyone's blood in cold storage in case mm-hmm. of an emergency. Mm-hmm. So they devise a test to uh, to make you know to sort of test take a blood sample from people and then compare that to the samples in cold storage to see if they're the same. Mm-hmm. But those samples are destroyed. So now they think that any one of them could be the thing because they were all in on that conversation about what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's a scene about three quarters of the way through the movie when I think McCready or one, or maybe the doc says what we could try is we could try burning. We should take a blood sample from everyone and try burning it. And if it tries to defend itself, then we know that it's not human and, and it's the thing. Okay. So this, this is that kind of a living flesh that is independent. Yes. Conscious yes. in some way. And there's a scene that features that, which is really effective. Mm-hmm. Because again, that's, each time they test it, you think something's going to happen and nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And then when it does happen, it just comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like the classic horror movie trope of, you know there's something behind that door. Mm-hmm. Or there's a series of doors and you know that there's something behind one of them, but you don't know mm-hmm. which one. And they, they pick the one that works perfectly to be the least expected. Exactly, yes. Yes, because it sort of comes out of a, of, um, of a joke and you think, oh, everything's okay, and then everything just goes nuts. <laughs> everything just goes nuts very quickly. Um, yeah, that combination of unexpected and completely expected is what yes. makes for a good, a good really, scare. Really, really effective. So, you know, Carpenter directs the hell out of this film, you know. It's, I, th- I think it's his best movie. Mm. Um, well, that's why it's on the list, right? That's, well, that's why it's on the list, yeah, because, you know, as we've said before, there's only one movie per, per director, and, you know, we've chosen a Wes Craven. We've chosen a... Um, I'm trying to think. i look at the list now to see if... George Romero. We've chosen a George Romero. This is the John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's his best movie. I think it's one of the best examples, if not maybe the best example of physical effects on film. Wow. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's, a, that's a strong... That's a high... Yeah. Strong thing to say, but I think it is true. Um, I mean, we're high up the list now. We are high up the list, yeah. But I think, I think to, you know, when you think about how, how, how much physical effects are used in this film, they're all absolutely top draw quality. Right. Just amazing. Um, it's certainly one of my favourite movies. It, it, uh, it definitely bears repeat viewing. Is it a bit boring because it's a bit old? No. Okay. No, no, it it's rattles not that old, along. Is it? I mean, films from the 60s are all boring. Yeah, I'd say that's probably true. That's a, that, I mean, that's <laughs> I was massive, expecting some pushback. <laughs> that's a huge generalisation. <laughs> huge yeah. generalisation. Still, uh, it is true. But they are quite long, so mm-hmm. I think you know, that's... Uh, now, the thing is not boring. It's 109 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's lean. It's... Pretty fast moving. Um, I think I think it's perfect. You know, it's. Um, I don't think there's anything you could do to improve it, really. Wow. So uh, this, the, the point needs to be made here. This is yes, very high up the list. It is. This is number yeah. four. This is higher than Night of the Living Dead and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, it's a is it's it really a better movie. That good? Than, yeah, yeah, it's a better movie than both of those. You know, I think wow. Night of the Living Dead is a terrific film. See, because I'm I'm wondering whether. Mm. It's this high up the list because John Carpenter has contributed so much. You uh, felt he had to. No, I don't think so. I mean, he has contributed a great deal to the horror genre, but so has George Romero. Yeah. Um, but I think this is a better movie than Night of the Living Dead. Okay, so why does it have to be so high up the list? It's a it's a complete film. It it I don't th- you know, there's things that I would definitely improve about Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. could be improved about it. Um, uh, particularly I think uh, Dead suffers from some quite poor acting at times 
mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. pulls you out of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may be because of George Romero's, you know, maybe... I think that he was a complete director in terms of knowing how to put a scene together and how to construct a movie, but maybe not in terms of directing actors. Yeah, I don't think you could defend the acting <laughs> consistently across any of the, the Dead no. films. No, I, I, there's some terrible acting in Day of the Dead. Oh. Really, like, stinky acting. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Day of the Dead, it would be difficult to spot anything that wasn't terrible acting. Yeah, that's true. But um, uh, the thing... Uh, I think one of the things that counts in The Thing's favour is the casting of Kurt Russell... Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's easy on the eye, so you know when I watched this with my wife, she said, "Who's who's that guy?" And I said, well, "That's Kurt Russell." And she said, "Hmm, he's quite good looking, isn't he?" So you know that sort of give that gave her a sort of um, mm-hmm. a way into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he's backed up by uh, quite a diverse age range of actors, some mm-hmm. of whom are like um, like late golden age Hollywood actors who are just really rock solid Mm -hmm. uh, and can deliver this material even though the material is quite hokey Mm -hmm. they deliver it brilliantly right yeah i mean i certainly think yeah so much horror does really lack in the acting department and yeah it does pull you out of it absolutely yeah i don't remember being completely spellbound by the thing i'm pretty sure i've seen it but i remember very little about it so i can't really comment i'm sure you have seen it I've seen it many, many times. I've de- the dog thing really made me think. I must have seen it. Yeah, the dog thing is incredible. It's, I mean, it's unsettling and worrying, the dog thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it's, it, it appears to be an animal that's in distress, but obviously it's not. Do you think this film has any meaning beyond its story? Paranoia. So, <clears throat> 1982... Um, you know, we're coming to the <clears throat> to the end of the the Cold War, mm-hmm. when I remember tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union being just, you know, um, the worst that they'd ever been. Mm-hmm. The you know, after the invasion of Afghanistan, I genuinely thought that we were going to go up in a mushroom cloud at mm-hmm. any time, and then of course the Soviet Union collapsed mm-hmm. two years later. So, um. I think that, yeah, it's it's all about paranoia. It's all about can you trust the person next to you, mm-hmm. and that message is still strong to this day. It's never really gone away, um, and I think maybe it's more prevalent now than it ever been. Like so many of the films on this list, it's an allegorical horror movie. That's interesting. So I I, I agree that a lot of the themes in a lot of films. I've I've almost come back into relevance or back into prominent relevance recently, mm. but but how does this paranoia? You know, we're not worried about communists anymore. So what are you talking about? Maybe we are. I don't know. Uh, we're not worried about communists. I think that um, for uh, for folks who who are worried about the environment, who worry about racism, who worry about globalization, extinction. Um, there, there are definitely, uh, you know, as we talked about, I think in our our love versus fear podcast, mm-hmm. there are forces in the world who seek to disrupt those things and to push an agenda that says that climate change doesn't exist, 
that racism is, is okay, that it's okay to be nationalistic and hateful. Uh, but you can't tell what those people are just by looking at them. <laughs> and that's, that's what this is, is about paranoia. You could be stood, stood next to someone who's driving a, you know, who is a climate change denier, who is a Nazi, who's a racist. Um, and those things are still, those, those are powerful things. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure about that. Okay, well, well, okay. So, give me your take on on what's your what's your viewpoint on it? Well, uh, the the idea that you could be betrayed by your neighbour, you know, which is the kind of the kind of thing that the London that with the Stasi in um, East Germany or with the, with the communists, the Reds under the bed, yeah, was a was a scary thing at that time. Yeah, now, I certainly feel like we're at a time which is extremely difficult. Um. But I hadn't thought about about mistrust between, you know, people very close to each other so much as. Um, well, I'll give you I'll give you an example. This is this is a sort of um, interesting example. Is that in the area where I live recently there have been um, extinction protests. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so people uh, protesting about plastics in the ecosystem and. Mm-hmm. Um, disposable things that could be replaced by reusable things Mm -hmm. and people have actually come along to protest them protesting right you know to say well why should you tell us how we should wrap our presents and why should you tell me what drinks bottles i should buy and i just so you're surprised that ordinary people are somehow on the side of this what we think of as a kind of dark oppressive conspiracy against the people but they're just regular people fair enough they're just regular people and you wouldn't know they were until they decide to take against you. Fair enough. Um, I see that. I see, yeah. yeah, that feeling of... Yeah, and I kind of... I think I see a similar feeling. Um, I feel like a kind of um, tide of, of kind of racist sentiment mm. has risen up in the UK in the last few years and, and yeah, I do have that feeling of... You know, I thought kind of all ordinary people were against that and but they're not and now i feel like there are some people who just aren't who, who, are, are, who are ordinary who f- people there are people who feel enabled by some people in in the media and public figures they feel enabled to say extreme things because they see other people saying them and they think it's okay but it's not okay kids <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, it's not okay to be racist. No, it's not cool. Slightly controversial, but yes, I've said it. I don't think it's controversial at all. Uh, so, should we have a look at? Oh, so any any or Morricone cool. like... uh, composed the film's score. Um, a lot of it's electronic music. So there's some um, uh, Carpenter also contributed some music along with his longtime collaborator Alan Howarth. Mm. Uh, just do you know, keep, do you know yeah. what I, I do think? Yes. Like, it's probably more about me than anything else, but I find in almost all cases, electronic music or very electronic sounding music doesn't help me. It draws, it, it like distracts me from. So actually, let's, tra- let's wrap up the thing mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about a movie that you watched recently that does feature an electronic score. Right, right, right. Because I was going to say the only thing I can think of that. The only thing that comes to mind 
that doesn't distract me with an electronic score is Blade Runner, which I presume is not on this list. It's not, no. 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 Uh, and, and other than that, I find it often, especially films from around about this time period, mm. I feel like you just want to rescore them with, with a standard orchestral film soundtrack and then maybe I'd enjoy yeah, them Yeah, I think that um, Carpenter's electronic stuff is hit and miss. Mm-hmm. I think in the case of The Thing, it works very well because it's very minimalist. Right, right, right. It's yes. re- you know you could replicate it with an orchestra and it would sound pretty much the same because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's really minimalist um, stuff. It's very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing was not a success on release. Right. It was a it's now box office, very well known, right? Yeah, it was a box office failure. Um, it's got a good name. It's the kind of name that sticks around even if the film isn't any good. Yeah. Uh, but it really did well on home video. So this was the time when home video was really taking hold and it did incredibly well on home video. Right. Um, So there are numerous, numerous Blu-ray and DVD releases. The soundtrack was released on compact cassette uh, originally (laughs) and then uh, on CD in 1991. Oh no, there's a vinyl score in uh, was released in 2017, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been critically oh, just reassessed been, since then. I've just been googling. I apologise. Yeah. Um, just I was just looking up what uh, music, what what film was sampled by Gorillaz. Oh, okay. What was it? Uh, and it's in the song M1A1. Okay. Which, by the way, I really quite like. Mm-hmm. And it's a sample from Day of the Dead. Ah, oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> there's a bit where it, there's a there's a bit of music, um, background music, electronic, by the way, background music. Just after yes. I said that, that was a problem for me. Um, it's just in an, in the opening of a scene. It's just a bit tense, um, and then they use that as the kind of background for the whole of that track M one A one. Right. Okay. Sorry for interrupting you. That's okay. No, that's interesting. I didn't know that. By the way, I googled using DuckDuckGo. <coughs> I literally just googled something by using DuckDuckGo. I still called it googling. Quack, quack. Uh, yeah, so was not a success. Was right. not a success. But, but then was a success on video. Was a, was a success on video. Was reassessed later on mm-hmm. and was found to be a lot better than people remember it being. I don't really know why it wasn't a success at the time. Is the name just too brash? It might be. It might also be that people weren't quite prepared for how... I think it is quite cutting edge in terms of mm. the effects and okay. the paranoid tone might not be, you know, up everyone's alley or down everyone's street. Mm-hmm. Um, by the wells. Uh, in the wells near, the, near Glastonbury Street. Uh, but it is one of my favourite movies. And I think it's John Carpenter's best Cool. I, I, I should watch it again. There's, my feeling with, about John Carpenter is I've watched some films that weren't that great, but I feel like there are good ones, and mm. some, I should somehow get my head around that. So just as a as a postscript, mm-hmm. it had a huge impact on John Carpenter's career because mm-hmm. he'd lost the job of directing the 1984 science fiction horror film Firestarter mm-hmm. because of the poor performance. Um, his previous success had gained him a multiple film contract at Universal but the studio opted to buy him out of it instead ouch yes that is basically a here's some money go away Um, he did not openly talk about the thing's failure until the 1985 interview uh, 
where he said, I was called a pornographer of violence. I had no idea it would be received that way. The thing was just too strong for that time. I knew it was going to be strong, but I didn't think it would be too strong. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so maybe that maybe it was considered too too yeah. nasty. Yeah. Um shortly after it's released, Wilbur Stark sued Universal for forty three million for slander, breach of contract, fraud and deceit, alleging he incurred a financial loss by Universal failing to credit him properly in its marketing by showing his name in the end credits in a less prestigious position. Stark <laughs> okay. said he contributed greatly to the screenplay. David Foster responded that Stark was not involved with the film's production in any way and received proper credit in its, in its materials. Um, he, he later sued for another $15 million. The outcome of the lawsuits is not known. That just sounds insane to me. Right. So, yeah, it affected Carpenter very badly. Um, right. I mean, he also made a, a very successful adaptation of another Stephen King novel, Christine. Um, which is a very, which is a very good horror movie. I don't oh, think. Did you say? Did you say this was Stephen King? Uh, no, this isn't. No. Oh, okay, okay. No, no, no. But Christine is, right, and, right. and Carpenter directed that, which I think is a very effective Stephen King adaptation. Right. Um, but that's not on this list, as you know. It's interesting how many um, Stephen King short stories became films that I think are better than these stories. Oh yeah. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption is my is still my um, favorite movie ever. It's, it's, it's one, yeah, it's really, really great. So many great moments. Yes, yeah, so that's based on a novella or a short story. Stand by Me is based on a short story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm still got yeah. my fingers crossed that my favorite film is coming up in this list. By the way, have you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, it might be. It might be. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> Um, I think that's probably it for the thing right well we've gone on ages so hopefully it is yeah so that was number four number four yeah next comes number three number three Um, number three is a 1980 horror film 1980 1980 American Mm. I can't really think. Like, there are only three films, three slots left. Three slots left, yeah, 1980. I ought to have in my head what those are going to be. Hmm. Okay. But I don't know, I don't know. Go on. Would it, would it help if I said it was produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick? It should, shouldn't it? It should really, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I the don't know. Sh- it's The Shining. Oh, okay, I didn't know that was by Stanley Kubrick. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. The Shining. Well, speak of Stephen King. Yes, and he's here again. Is that is The Shining a full novel, though? Uh, yes, it is. Okay, yeah. Okay. But Kubrick's adaptation of it, or at least he didn't... Yes, no, he did co-write it, yeah. Um, is very different from the... No- well, it's not radically different, but is different from the novel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's based on Stephen King's 1977 novel of the same name. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about... Uh, a writer called Jack Torrance, who's played by Jack Nicholson, in mm-hmm. I, and I think what would be a career-defining performance. Yeah, I mean, is there an, is there a more Jack Nicholson performance? I don't think there that? is. No, I mean, he he's the Joker. Yeah, that's that's I really like his Joker actually. You do or you don't? I do. 
right. Yeah, I think I think it's a great performance. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I think that he dominates the movie. Yeah. Um, and he dominates everything. He well, he does because he's got such a. Huge, like I, actually, I was talking about this on Twitter um, a little while ago. Now, uh, I think somebody mentioned um, a few good men, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Rob Reiner. So Rob Reiner, who directed This Is Spinal Tap, directed a few good men. Mm. The courtroom scene with Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. where Tom Cruise says, "I want the truth," and Jack says. You can't handle the truth. It's been much parodied mm-hmm. and much mocked, but it is incredible. Yeah, it's a good film. Though. It's a really good film, and and I think Jack Nicholson's performance in that, where he justifies his actions, is chilling. But he's mm-hmm. such a great actor, and he dominates that scene so much that you actually come to think, well, maybe you're right about what you're saying. <laughs> that film is one of the few films that I took someone out to on a date. Wow. <laughs> Like an actual date. It's quite intense. Yeah, I'm not sure it's great date material. No, I don't think it is, no. <laughs> no. Mm. Well, I took someone on a date to go and see Event Horizon, so I think that's probably even worse date material. You think? Yeah, probably. It's Isn't it standard practice to go on something a, a bit scary so that you can... Yeah, know, definitely. Comfort each other. Well, you, there's that frisson of being scared, which is, mm-hmm. you know, brings you together. It, it can help you... Seem exciting, can't you? Yes, because you know, <laughs> if you have an exciting experience together, that's almost like you being exciting. Like going on a roller coaster or something. Yeah, yeah, being scared, stupid. Right. Um, so yeah, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance, an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic. Alarm bells should ring. <laughs> yeah, <coughs> they will do. <laughs> who, who spoilerific. Accepts, spoilerific. Who accepts a position as the off-season caretaker of the isolated historic Overlook Hotel? In the Colorado Rockies, and the music and stuff, and, the, and just the filming amazing. of it, uh, it make, immediately makes you know that this was a terrible idea. Yes, a very, very terrible idea. <clears throat> so, um, so he's win- wintering over with him are his wife Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, in another career-defining performance. Although you would say maybe she screams a lot. <laughs> and she runs away, but she does oh, but it. Her, yeah. What style? I mean, what? I style? mean, the terror. Have you seen terror depicted? No, like that? no, Effect, so effectively. Yeah, um, and young son Danny Torrance, played by Danny Lloyd, who was, I think, um, either hadn't done very much, or this was his movie debut. Mm-hmm. Um, so Danny possesses The Shining. I'm making air quotes again, <laughs> which are psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. That, that enable him to see into the hotel's horrific past. Mm-hmm. The hotel's cook, played by Scatman Crothers, also has this ability and is able to telepathically communicate with Danny. So the hotel... Okay. Ha- I never really understood that that was what was going on. So yes, yeah, there is a bit where they do that. So the hotel had a previous winter caretaker who went crazy and killed his family and himself. And after a winter storm leaves the Torrances snowbound, Jack's sanity deteriorates due to the influence of the supernatural forces that inhabit the hotel, placing and the his fact that he's got writer's block, and he's a, and he's a recovering alcoholic, mm-hmm. placing his wife and son in danger. I think yeah. one of my favourite scenes in this movie. I mean, uh, I think uh, Kubrick never made the same film twice. I think that's important to say. You know, this isn't this mm-hmm. is uh, for Kubrick his only horror movie. Um, <clears throat> he would wow. make he made 
This, he made uh, Full Metal Jacket, which is a war movie. Um, Eyes Wide Shut, which is uh, a terrible movie. That was his, <laughs> that was his last film. Uh, Doctor I Strange love Full Love. Metal Jacket. Doctor Strange Love, which is a, you know, a satire on war and... Mm, maybe I love that even more. Military, militarism. Uh, Lolita, which is uh, a film all about a man who's obsessed with a young girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then way back, Piles of Glory, which is all about um, some French soldiers who deserted during the First World War. Uh, I'm probably missing some. Oh, yeah. Um, Barry Lyndon, an adaptation of a William Thackeray novel, which is one of the most beautiful looking films I've ever seen. Mm. Um, um, a Clockwork Orange as well. Ah, oh, Clockwork Orange. So you know that's a pretty disparate group of films. You know he didn't make yeah. that many films during his career. Uh, he was yeah. brought in to replace Alexander Corder uh, to direct Spartacus. So that was that was his first big movie, Spartacus, mm. which is a very very big movie. I would say about Clockwork Orange that um, I would definitely read the book. I think the film is a spirited attempt to do the book. Is it a difficult? But, is it a difficult one to adapt? Do you think? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the, what happens in the book is you read the first few chapters. You can't really understand what they're saying because they're speaking in this oh, dialect. Yes, yes, yeah. And then uh, uh, a little while in, you, you realise you understand. Mm. You sort of, you've picked it up. Um, so that's one thing that you just can't reproduce in film because if you did that. Yeah, no one would watch it. Um, but also, yeah, it, I don't know. The, the book had a, a huge impact on me, and I don't think you could do that in an hour and a half or two hours. No, no. I think I think *A Clockwork Orange* is patchy at best. Patchy at best. You know, it it um, became infamous because Kubrick withdrew it from release in the right, UK. I thought it was. I thought it was too damaging to allow. Um, no people to watch. Yeah, I mean, he withdrew it because there were copycat attacks by people mm-hmm. dressed up as the Droogs, uh, mm-hmm. which is the the group of um, miscreants led by oh, I can't remember the character's name now. Me neither. Uh, but Malcolm McDowell plays the character. Uh, so Kubrick just said, "Well, look, you people are clearly not capable of discerning between reality and fantasy, so I'm taking it." I'm withdrawing it from from distribution. Something you can do in a book is you can have something be ultra-violent mm. without, without being accused of being exploitative. At least, not always, but it's possible to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. and just for it just to be horrible and shocking and, um, and make its political point, if you depict that on screen, it's a completely different thing and it's much harder. You can't be half as extreme, and it isn't, the film, mm. but also it, it, it can still seem exploitative and, you know, and things. I guess just writing down the words is never going to be as um, weird as people actually acting out, pretending it's really happening. No, I mean. no, absolutely, yeah. Um, anyway... Back to the, the extremeness sh- of it. Sorry, the extremeness but, of it is okay. like yeah. is necessary, right? So the it book is, is yeah. really extreme. You should read the book. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, production took place almost exclusively at EMI's Elstree Studios, with sets strongly based on real locations. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Right. It feels it really feels like a big. Yeah, hotel. it does. Yeah. 
Um, Kubrick often worked with a very small crew, which allowed him to do many, many takes, sometimes right. to the exhaustion of the actors and staff. I think always <laughs> to the exhaustion of everyone. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, the new Steadicam was used in several scenes, giving it an innovative and immersive look and feel. Yeah, the Steadicam that he's using this is mm. absolutely stunning. So remind me of the name of the, the lead actress. Uh, Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. Because she, I was just thinking of the exhaustion point. Yes. She looks... She looks strung out, scenes. doesn't she? Looks she looks absolutely... Yeah, absolutely strung out. Yeah. Vulnerable, weak, and destroyed, physically, mentally destroyed. Yes. And that really comes across in the movie. And you could say that that's cruel. I say that it's... <laughs> film is forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't. I guess we can't tell from watching the film whether it was cruel or not. But. No, no. I mean, I think that if you go in uh, at that time, if you go into a movie with Stanley Kubrick, you know that you're going to be doing multiple takes, <laughs> and he's going to put you through the mill. So you go in, go into it with open eyes. Um. Uh. So yeah, Steadicam which is very effective. There's several examples of that. So there's, there's, I think, some of the greatest Steadicam and sort of um, orchestration of a scene mm. is when we're following Danny on his trike. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Of. As he yeah. rides around the hotel foyer. Uh, so there's carpet, then there's wooden floor. Oh, yeah. And the sound. The sound is different on the carpet from the wooden floor. So you get this, this, re this repetition of him riding around and around the hotel. He then diverts and goes down a few corridors. And it's then that we see him come face to face with these twin girls, mm -hmm. who no doubt Listener has seen in many, many compendiums. I mean, I mean <laughs> Listener may even see The Shining, but this scene has been shown so many times in um, yeah. compendiums of horror movies. He comes across these girls, he stops absolutely dead, they're standing at the end of the corridor and they both say, hello, Danny, come and play with us. Come and play with us forever and ever and ever. And the camera pans back to him and he's just sitting there like shaking in, in terror. So that's, that's the first great use of Steadicam. Oh, yeah. um, the other stuff that I love in this is where Jack goes to the hotel bar and he imagines that there's a barman and he imagines that there's other people there. And he, yeah. has, he has a conversation with the barman who's called Lloyd, who's actually played by Joe Turkle, who is, plays, um, oh, who plays the boss of the android company who are called, what's they called in Blade Runner? Who makes the Nexus? Oh, oh. Oh, I should know that. Yeah, so should I, and it's completely gone out of my mind. Anyway, the bloke that they get to after they meet the eye bloke. Yes, yeah. Um, so he plays him in Blade Runner. And he plays the barman Lloyd, and um, uh, Jack tries to pay for his drink, his imaginary drink. <laughs> and Lloyd says, no, Mr. Torrance, your money's no good here. In the most chilling way possible. <laughs> Uh, I think The Shining is an incredible piece of work. Um, 
not liked at all by Stephen King. Right. Stephen right. King said it was uh, it, it was so radically different than the book that he just couldn't. He doesn't like it. He still yeah. complains about it to this day, right. even though it's you know it's probably made him rich or maybe maybe it didn't. Maybe that's why he's annoyed. But um, <laughs> I think that as a, as a Stanley Kubrick adaptation of a horror movie, it's it's perfect. Uh, it it starts off very benignly, so it starts off. I think it opens with. Um, uh, a Volkswagen Beetle driving through the mountains on a mountain road, which seems very benign. But then they get to the Overlook Hotel, which is sort of half empty with people sort of packing up for the winter. And they meet the staff, and it's all very kind of naturalistic in tone. And it's mm-hmm. only when everybody clears out the hotel and th- things start to settle down and you realise that Jack is not the best person you want to be with. <laughs> for the winter when you can't go anywhere when the first snow arrives um, and Jack keeps saying to his wife Wendy I'm working you've got to keep the boy away from me I'm working and when Wendy eventually gets to his typewriter to see what he's been working on she finds that he's just been repeating over and over again all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy which I think is one of the greatest reveals in cinema there's pages and pages. Pages and pages of this. Reams and reams of yeah, paper. Yeah, that's all he's been doing. Um, and that's when she completely loses her mind and thinks that they're in terrible danger, which, of course, they are. Um, so There's so much yeah. stuff in it that's so iconic. Ut- utterly iconic. Um, so there's that scene yeah. and the, the scene you've mentioned... There's the scene with blood coming out of the... Oh, yeah, blood coming out of the elevator. walls. Yeah, oh, the elevator, that's right, yeah. And there's the... Obviously, <clears throat> there's the, the Here's Johnny... Here's scene. Johnny! <clears throat> so, I, given how iconic all that stuff is, yeah. I do think it's fairly scary. I don't know why... I was trying to examine why I... I've never considered this to be one of the best films. Mm. I think I've made, maybe feel like it's a bit tacky. I, I guess maybe because he... The way he acts, Jack Nicholson, is very over the top. Maybe I thought it was a bit cheesy. I think maybe you need to revisit it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about the the shots that you're talking about, and especially the way the camera moves, which I guess is what yeah. this Steadicam thing you're talking about. Yes, yeah. Is incredible. Also, the other thing that came to mind when you're talking about the, the changing noise when they move to different yes. bits of floor yeah, um, is that there are only a few films where that kind of effect is used very effectively and one of them is a bit which is very close to a bit of Reservoir Dogs that we have which is controversial let's say okay um, but the, the bit in Reservoir Dogs when he's about to do the ear cutting yes he he goes out to the car park to get something possibly to get the razor blade I think to, maybe to get the razor blade yeah to yeah. do the ear yeah and the camera follows him really really it really drags out but the sound completely changes when he goes outside. Oh, okay. And then he goes into his boot. And I, and I think there's some there's someone tied up in there? Oh, no. Yeah, is that, oh, is it, oh, is it? No, he goes cop. out to get the cop. Isn't that the cop who's, who's tied to, up in yeah, the boot? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he goes out to get him and takes him in. And the, the sound changes as he goes outside and comes back in again. Yeah. And there's this sense of danger that the, the cops might come. And also just this, it just really drags out. 
Yeah. And uh, that changing sound just really reminded me uh, it's a similar thing happening, maybe. Yeah, sound design is, is something that I think is underrated in film. Uh, it can make or break a scene sometimes, even though, mm. the, even though it might be visually interesting. If the sound design doesn't sell the scene, mm. then you get pulled out of the movie or it doesn't have the impact that it maybe should mm. have. Uh, yeah, I think the sound design in The Shining is incredible. So, mm. yeah, there's also the scene in Room 237 with Red Rum. Well, the, oh yeah, we forgot Red Rum. Yeah, is that not Room Two Three Seven? No, well yeah, it's it's a part of it. So <clears throat> Room Two Three Seven. That is featured in um, Ready Player One. Oh no, that is that's what I was going to say actually. Okay, <clears throat> is that they go to the Overlook in Ready Player One, <laughs> and they rebuilt the set for the movie. Well, and honestly, it looks exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty effective, right. isn't it? Yeah. I really like Ready Player One. I saw a poster for it the other day. I thought, oh, I really want to watch that again. Yeah, it's terrific, isn't it? It's I, really good. I thought it was terrific. Much better than I expected. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, should, I mean, it's Spielberg, so it's probably going to be good, but I thought it was really good. Mm. Very, red very... Rum. Re, so, yes, yeah, so a Red Rum <laughs> is... Red Rum. Red Rum. Red Rum. <laughs> so this is the kid, Danny... <laughs> who has seen the word murder written, but he's seen it backwards in a mirror. Spoilers. So he's... Yeah, I'm sorry. So he's red saying he's saying red rum. Now, the thing that happens in room 237 is Jack goes in there and there's a beautiful woman in the bath. Yeah. And, she and this is the bit that's in Ready Player One. Yeah, so she gets out of the bath and then when he looks back towards the mirror, it's like an old crone that he's holding on to. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it's just... Um, it's a bit ageist, that, isn't it? Well... It's pretty unsettling. Yeah. I suppose it is. I suppose it it's is. a bit ageist. I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> but it's effective. It's very effective. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, it is. And it's, it's scary because it, it transforms from this beautiful form into a scary form. But uh, I re- in retrospect, I regret that the scary form is basically just an old lady. <laughs> Couldn't yeah. it be something else scary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um... Uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, so so there's more steady cam at the end of the movie, when Danny and his mum, Wendy, they they escape outside into the maze. So, so the hotel has yeah. a maze that's all frozen. So scary. And Jack follows them with an axe whilst bellowing, <laughs> Danny, Danny, uh, and that's all steady cam, and that's really quite something. Yeah, and it's that scene that made me think of uh, her vulnerability. Yes. Um, yeah. That's where she really looks terrified, and yeah. Yeah. So, um, this wasn't the first time that Steadicam had been used, but I think it's probably the first time that it was used to the effect that it is here. Um, you know, making it front and centre a sort of tool to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, rather so than Steadicam yeah. is a camera that is steady when well, it moves. Is it's that a thing? brand. So it's a it's a brand of um, mount mm-hmm. that's actually fixed to your body. Mm-hmm. It contains okay. it contains gyroscopes so that it smooths out the movement of walking mm-hmm. because you know mm-hmm. walking mm-hmm. makes a very particular movement. In fact, the human brain cancels out the wobbling that happens when we walk. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. That, so that when we walk around, we appear to be a steady cam. You know, we're sort of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Uh, but actually, there's a lot of movement going on. But what the Steadicam does is it smooths that out. Right. So that when, uh, when we're following Danny around the hotel, that is just a man walking around with a camera. Wow. But it appears so smooth. smooth. It appears smooth, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he would go on to use it again in um, Full Metal Jacket several times. So there's a scene when they walk down in the... Um, uh, during the training scenes, they mm. walk down the line of recruits, which I think is... I'm, I mean, some of the shooting in Full Metal Jacket is just absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful. I love Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, it's an amazing film. And also they use it in the scenes in Vietnam uh, where they're following a, a tank mm-hmm. and there's Marines behind it doing this sort of manoeuvre to keep, keep behind the tank. Mm-hmm. And that goes on for quite a long time and that's a lovely bit of Steadicam footage mm-hmm. there. Um... Kubrick was uh, just a bit of information about Kubrick. He was not uh, a film school. He didn't study at film school. He was a stills mm-hmm. photographer before he was a movie director. Right, that makes sense. Um, he had an incredible eye. I think we're probably one of the best uh, eyes for a shot of anybody. Um, he would re- he would regularly reframe or use a different lens. That his, if his cinematographer chose a lens and he didn't like it, he just change it. Mm-hmm. and said mm-hmm. you, you should use that one um, on one of his movies the cinematographer set up, set up a dolly shot so a dolly is when they put a camera on rails mm-hmm. set up this dolly shot with a particular lens Kubrick came in said he didn't like it so he just completely redid it um, but you know you just don't argue with him you know he, mm-hmm. you know, he knows what he's doing <laughs> um, uh, I think um, one of the greatest filmmakers of the 20th century Stanley Kubrick possibly the greatest um, in terms, wow. of, yeah, maybe, maybe the greatest. He's certainly an idol of mine in terms of the way that he did things. Oh, to, I forgot two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey. That's that's mm-hmm. one of his as well. That's an amazing film. Which is his best film? I th- yeah, I think two thousand and one probably is. No, no, I, I'm asking mm-hmm. which one is. But oh, is okay. That, is yeah, I think two thousand and one is probably his best. I think The Shining is no. Hmm. Who made? Um, See, the thing is, they're all such different genres that I don't really think I can say. Now, who made the Vietnam one where the bloke, there's a bloke going crazy in the jungle? Uh, oh, that's Oliver Stone. So that's okay, Platoon. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Platoon. Oh no, no, I wasn't thinking of Platoon. I was thinking of bloke, um, bloke going crazy in the jungle. Yeah, the fa- that famous bloke. That famous. <laughs> come on, you got to give me more than that. <laughs> He's got a bald head, uh, got, and there's there's a, a a pig gets slaughtered. No, something gets slaughtered. Oh, 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 oh. Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, yeah. Um, Who made that? That's Francis Coppola. Okay, it's not Kubrick, okay. okay. Yeah, but yeah, Apocalypse okay. Now is terrific. I confused those two, yeah. I think. Okay. Um, All right, continue. What's the best Kubrick film? Difficult. You're just telling me you can't tell me. I can't really say, because they're all such different genres. Mm-hmm. I think that depending on the day... For me, it's a toss-up between Full Metal Jacket and 2001. Right, right, right. Yeah, but it but depends on the day. 2001's a bit boring, yeah. so I'd probably go for Full Metal Jacket. I think Full Metal Jacket is an amazing piece of work. So um, here's an... Just as a, just as a postscript, uh, a film came out this year called Film Worker, mm-hmm. which is all about a guy called Leon Vitali, who had a, a supporting role in, a, in the Stanley Kubrick movie, Barry Lyndon. And whilst he was on Barry Lyndon, he became obsessed with Kubrick, the way that Kubrick worked, the way that Kubrick did things, Mm -hmm. and decided 
to make himself useful to Kubrick. Mm-hmm. So he approached him and said, I want to work for you. I want to learn how to make films. I want to be your assistant. I want to, you know, do, mm-hmm. do everything to help you out. And Kubrick, being Kubrick, said, yeah, okay, you can start by doing this for me. And the thing that he started out was finding the actor who would play Danny in uh, The Shining. Mm. Uh, so you can go and, go and do some casting, go and find this kid. Um, it's the kind of role that just wouldn't exist today because, you know, these people, films are made differently these days. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick was such an auteur, an auteur, that um, he could afford to say, yes, okay, Leon is is going to be doing all this stuff for me. So mm-hmm. when they started shooting The Shining, Leon would be Danny's acting coach as well. He right. Was, he was with him okay. all the time, um, sort of, sort of helping him with the performance and, mm-hmm. you know, helping to get something out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did that for the rest of his career. That he, gave, wow. he, he gave up his acting career and became Stanley Kubrick's assistant, gopher, you know, everything. Like, like, the films probably wouldn't have been made the way they were if it wasn't for Leon Vitale being wow. his assistant. And there's, um, uh, there's uh, interviews with... Um, Lee Ermey, who's in Full Metal Jacket, he plays the drill sergeant in one of the most incredible performances mm-hmm. ever, I think. That was his debut, his movie debut. Wow. And he said, there's no way I would have delivered that performance if it wasn't for Leon Vitale coaching me on my lines every day. Wow. And just going through it over and over and over again, repetition, repetition, to get the right intensity with it. Who knew? I know. It's an amazing film, film worker. I think that if um, if listener has an interest in film and how films get made and the kind of people who are behind the scenes sort of keeping everything going, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. Mm. And you look at Leon Vitale now, he looks like a shell of a man. <laughs> a man who's given up everything, you know, for somebody else. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, there's a little postscript about... So here's, uh, a, here's a question about The Shining. Yes, is it a slasher movie? No. Why not? Um, because we, we know who the killer is. Okay, okay. It's not a mysterious evil force. No, it's a ghost story. It's a ghost, it story, a ghost story about yeah. a family going mad in, um, in a hotel. I never... I don't... I, don't, I never really understood what was going on. <laughs> well, the, I, I, I always yeah. felt like maybe he just went mad because he was mad. Well, he is definitely, I mean, he is on the edge. He's a recovering mm. alcoholic. He's pretty borderline psychotic. Um, and uh, the hotel tips him over the edge. In fact, at the, at the end of the movie, um, he ends up in the picture. There's a picture near the bar of previous, uh, of people who've worked at the hotel. And Jack ends up in the picture. Mm-hmm. Along with, oh, actually, no, I think Stephen King has a cameo in the movie. as the uh, Because um, at one point in the bar, there's like a, a small orchestra playing. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King is the conductor of the orchestra. Oh, right. Even though he ended up not liking it. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so King, made, King financed uh, a TV movie of The Shining. Right. I think, in the 90s, which is a terrible, terrible oh, film. Oh, dear. And yet he won't. He will not shut up about how much he hates it. <laughs> I think he needs to let it go. Yeah. 
Okay, so why does it deserve this extremely high position? This is the third best horror, horror film of the 20th, of the 20th century. century. Um, it's utterly brilliant. It's Stanley Kubrick. It's visually incredible, visually sumptuous. It's mm-hmm. chilling. It's scary. It features some of the most iconic um, visual, uh, sorry, um, sort of camera shots. Mm. Uh, an iconic, I'd say, what did, what did I call it? Career best or career defining performance from Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it's an amazing film. And I know I've said that about other films on this list, that they're iconic and they feature career best stuff. But this one, I think, is, is just fantastic. Well, I certainly can't argue that it's iconic. It's yeah. definitely... I mean, there's so many scenes that are really recognisable because everyone from French and Saunders to The Simpsons mm. to Ready Player One has, yep. has, and lots of other people have integrated this stuff into their thing. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just looking for um, critical reception, see if I can find anything about it. I can't see it, actually. So I was thinking all about the film adaptation... Uh, I'm starting to doubt whether French and Saunders did it. Surely, no. Did. I think they did. I think they did. I think they did. Uh, response by Stephen King. I read. <laughs> I read a little bit about that. He says Kubrick stated that there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. Stephen King has been saying, quoted as saying that although Kubrick made a film with memorable imagery. It was poor as an adaptation. And that is the only adaptation of his novels that he can remember hating. Gosh. I know. Dude. Um, I guess Stephen King thought there was something so important about his novel that um, wasn't yet, fully expressed in the yeah, movie. And yet, in King's 1981 book Dance Macabre, he listed Kubrick's film among those he considered to have contributed something of value to the horror genre and mentioned it as one of his personal favourites. What? Um, but well, which is it, Stephen? I think King spent quite a lot of the 80s on cocaine, so maybe he doesn't remember <laughs> writing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so in an interview for the BBC, King also criticised Shelley Duvall's performance, saying, she's basically just there to scream and be stupid, and that's not the woman that I wrote about. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, it is a, a remarkable performance of screaming and being stupid. But. I think that um, her performance, not a performance, but her, the way that character is used in the film has come in for some criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that... <clears throat> I think that based on the fact that she wants to protect her son, I'm not sure how else you could do it, really. Because she's not protecting herself... She wants to protect her son from Jack. And that, well, you know, that yeah, kind of I mean, makes you hysterical. And I mean, the fact is that the film is about Jack. Yes. Right? So yeah, yeah. maybe the book isn't, and maybe that's what Stephen King objects to. I think maybe that's true. I think maybe the book, the book is maybe more skewed to Danny's story because it is called she, The Shining. Yeah. It's not called Jack. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm also just wondering now, I actually think... The film is largely through Jack's eyes. Yes. Yeah. So that's disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it is disturbing. We're seeing it through the eyes of a recovering alcoholic who might be psychotic. 
who then uh, but even when when he's hunting her down it's really f- through his eyes <clears throat> yeah yeah huh disturbing uh, also another postscript is that the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy was uh, localised or in- internationalised <laughs> <clears throat> into cool. Italian, French, Spanish, and German. But only those? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So those those were shot separately with different languages, which is... Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Because <clears throat> you would just do that digitally now. But. You probably would, yeah. But they actually, they, they typed it all out and then they shot those little inserts separately. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How quaint. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, but okay, but better better that than the subtitles. Interesting. Yeah. Um, for its release in Europe, Kubrick cut about twenty five minutes from the film. Mm. I'm not sure whether the version I've got is the that one or the the US release. Right, I'd be interested if there are twenty five minutes I haven't seen. I'd be interested in what's in. Yeah, there. I think the version that I've seen is the original. I don't right. think it's the European release because I'm just reading about what's in it and. Maybe yeah. I. Uh, Maybe I'd prefer the shorter one. Maybe. Um, I'm quite easily bored. Like 2001 really bored me. Yeah. I, I mean, also loved it. It's long. Yeah. I mean, Kubrick said he made it so that people could go to the cinema, drop some acid, have a sleep. and have a really good time. <laughs> have a sleep. When they wake up, it's still the same shot. Yeah, no, that's not what he made it for. <laughs> he definitely made it so that people could get stoned and go and... Watch a movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's pretty much all I have to say about this. I mean, I could say you know so much. We've gone on so long. I could say so much more about <laughs> The Shining, but I'm not going to. It's a good thing we only put two films into. I know. Well, the, this podcast. the next two, which I presume will be after Christmas, sometime, yeah. uh, will be one podcast each for the top two. It'll be one film per podcast. One we'll be back to the. The good robot Andy's formula. Yeah, and then I think we should do it. We should do our the tech. Wash up. We should. Oh, we did it. We should do the tech. Um, Retrospective. Why? Oh yeah, we need to do the. We need to do the retro. Yeah. 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 What do we do well? What could we do better next time? If this podcast was a boat, yes. Where would you be in the boat? Mm. Mm. I'd be the captain. Yeah, you would. Yeah, I'd be the cabin boy. <laughs> I'm not sure you would actually. I think you'd be um, you'd be number one. You'd be the first. You'd be first mate. Yeah, I'd be a number one. Yeah, I think you would be number one. Number one, commander. Thanks. You'd be the commander. I'd be the captain. <laughs> the master. And listener, yeah. listener would be uh, like in Titanic. And number two. Listener would be uh, in the. With all the people partying in the hold, yeah, like in Titanic. That's where you'd be, listener. That's where I want the people to be. That, the people that were just—they're partying, and then the water fills up the place, and we don't see them again. And they, it's because they all drown. Yeah, <laughs> we don't care about them. No, no. Uh, that's it. <laughs> Good. That's it. Thank goodness. Thank I know. Goodness. Thank goodness this is over. So do some plugging. Okay, so I present a um, radio show 
on Glastonbury FM 107.1 in the Glastonbury Street and Wells, Wells, Wells area of Somerset. Down the street, round the Wells. Round the Wells. Um, so now, can I bring? Can I jump in with Cathy's other piece of feedback? Yeah, go on then. Which is yeah. yeah. Oh, so was that going to be next episode? Yeah, oh, next right, episode. No, just, yeah. All right. Sorry. Okay. Oh, no. Although, on. if we do it next episode, uh-huh. I, uh, I won't be doing the show next episode. So, um, next oh this, this week is the last movie mashup ever. So last, you better listen. Last one of 2018. The last one ever. I'm standing down from the show because it's um, family family stuff. I've got an, an, another baby arriving next year. Congrats. Thank you. And it's... Um, I want to um, do things other than watch three movies a week. I'd like to catch up with some TV. Um, and I feel, a, I feel a duty to um, you know put on the best show that I can every week. And I feel that I'm not doing that at the moment. So, uh, But, you know, they have... Uh, GFM have said... That if I want to come back and do it again sometime, then I can. So that's very nice of them. Lovely. They're not throwing me out. Well, I've well, left. If there's an yeah. audience, if there's an audience outcry. Well, there might there might be one person who says, "Oh, I really miss Andy." Um, so yeah, well, I quite I quite miss Andy. That goes. I quite yeah. I quite miss him. <laughs> no, actually, I don't miss him at all. It'd but be, I like I like the new guy. It'd be like yeah, exactly. It'd be like the, it'd be like the critics <laughs> on the Muppets, yeah. I really miss him. He was great. No, he was okay. No, he was terrible. I hated him. <laughs> um, uh, so that goes out live uh, on at six o'clock on a Thursday. On well, well, on this Thursday only. This Thursday it will be live. I have two guests. What's that? Thursday the the twentieth. What is that? The twentieth. The twentieth of December, yes. twenty eighteen. Sometimes. PM. Sometimes in podcasts, people talk about events that are coming up. They and do. They don't say the year. No, that's they say, true. Oh, that's coming up in October, and you're like, Which when? Year? Yeah. When am I listening to this? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I've got two live guests this week. So Dean Mortlock wow. will be in. He is the editor of a magazine called The Basis, which is a local listings magazine, a bit like Time mm-hmm. Out, but for mm-hmm. Somerset, which is a very, very good magazine. I've been in the magazine. Um, wow, it must be good. A few years ago, yeah. Of course, it's good. If I'm in it. And yeah. um, a person, a lady called Liz Grasby, who's been on the show a great deal over the years. So she's coming in as well. And we're going to do a, a final re- reprise. Yes. We'll do a review of the year. And we'll talk about things that we're looking forward to next year. There will be mince pies. There may even be some Baileys in the studio. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So that's, that's going to go out live on at 6 p.m. on Thursday. Uh, you can listen on the internet. You can well listen on, on the internet. On the radios. Um, I'd like to say if there are any subscribers to the Movie Mashup podcast who are also subscribing to the Good Robot Andes, I am very sorry I haven't um, done um, <laughs> podcast highlights for a long time. But once the show is over, I'm going to get through that backlog because I'll have time to do it. And then I shall be posting regular updates to the feed talking about stuff that I'm watching. Because uh, I'll so have time. Stay subscribed. So stay subscribed. Yeah, don't unsubscribe. If I, I did check, and people haven't unsubscribed, so yeah, it's quite the, the thing about feeds like that is people forget to unsubscribe if there's no nothing on it. So hopefully, well, yeah, stick with it. Exactly. Yeah. So expect stuff to appear there in January as I start to get Oops. through the backlog. Um, that's my plugging. Cool. Yeah. A bit of plugging for me. Um, I've recently I've been I've been hatching a plan over a long time period. Whoa. Which I haven't wanted to talk about, um, but it's now come to fruition, so I can. So I've been 
working with an artist uh, to commission a design um, for a T-shirt and possibly for other things like uh, mugs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And the design is ready. Did you ever play Megalomania on the Amiga? No, I didn't have an Amiga. There was a little scientist when you when you'd um, done a, made a scientific breakthrough. Yes. There was a scientist who said the design is ready. <laughs> the design is ready. <laughs> yeah, but it was more more like the design is ready. Well, in a kind of wet sort of way. Yeah. Insipid. The design is ready. How could your impression be better than mine when you haven't ever played the game? Or if it had been an Igor sort of thing, then... <laughs> the design is ready, master. Anyway, yeah. uh, the design is ready. Uh, mm-hmm. The design uh, for a, a very exclusive T-shirt um, is a, a picture of a girl coding mm. uh, with the slogan, Code Like a Girl. How does one um, code like a girl, Andy? Well, um, essentially... Um, the women programmers bring um, enormous amount of skill and um, uh, ability to the job. Yes, and are massively underrepresented in the programming world. They are, um, and the uh, there is a movement that I would like to be part of, of reclaiming the phrase "like a girl," mm. which has been used as an insult. Um, to be used as a, an encouragement and uh, as someone who'd like to see uh, a lot more women take up programming yeah, because I think they bring um, something unique and interesting to it that men don't bring to it because they well yeah because there aren't enough programmers we need more yeah we need <laughs> good programmers women that I've yeah. worked with have been brilliant yeah. programmers and I'd like to work with more brilliant programmers mm. um uh, and I'd like to um, be part of changing our perceptions in society that that's in some way an unusual thing. Um, so there is this cool T-shirt. It says "Code Like a Girl." It's got a picture of a girl coding. Like it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, you can uh, you can have that T-shirt as well. So I've I've got one made for myself. I'll probably make a few more for myself and possibly some mugs and stuff like that. Um, but you can have one. Um, the way you can have one is to look me up on Twitter um, or on Mastodon. Um, the the link to me on to my Twitter and Mastodon is on the about page of the Good Robot Andes. So if you search for the Good Robot Andes and look for the the word about on the page, you click through, find my Twitter or my Mastodon, and uh, and either just uh, message me uh, or look back through recent tweets, and you'll see. Um, where I tweeted some links to uh, the website Street Shirts with a, okay. the design on there. That that link will expire after a while, so just contact me if you'd like me to set one up again, and I will. Um, I'm selling them like at cost price, or you know, well, cost price for me. So I'm sure Street Shirts are making a small profit, but I'm not making a profit. Um, so they're reasonably cheap. They're like nine quid or twelve quid, depending which one you go for. That's very good value. Plus, there's a bit of delivery as well. There's a couple of quid delivery, but it's not too bad. Um, it's a pretty cool T-shirt. Um, it seems decent quality. Yeah. Um, but the, I really like the design, obviously. You would hope that. You would hope um, so, yes. Yeah, and uh, if you like that kind of thing, I think maybe we should do more of it. So I think we should. I, I'm kind of thinking that we should have a good robot and his T-shirt and mug. Oh, that would be so cool. Yes. The, 
there aren't there are so many people walking around with the logos of large faceless corporations exactly. on them. Yeah. And they could and be people should walk around. around with rabbit escape t shirts on. Now that's cool. Are there rabbit escape t shirts? <laughs> there are rabbit escape t shirts. See I'd have one of those because I think rabbit escapes cool. Well, you're about the fourth person who's told me that they would quite like a rabbit escape t-shirt. Yeah, I would. So I, should probably, yeah. I should probably make more of that. I would like one. But yeah, good Robert Andy's t-shirts and mugs and um, coasters and mouse mats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a logo. Yeah, we have. We should use it. Yeah. In fact, it doesn't need any text. It just needs the logo. Right, right. That would be cool. It would spark conversation. You'd be like, what's that? And you said, that's me. And Andy Bailey. That's the good robot Andy's. Yeah, or you'd say, that's me that. and Andy Cockerell. And we'd say, yeah, I would say that. We're yeah. the good robot Andy's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we look like. Exactly. The other thing we must do uh-huh. at some point is um, we talked about doing a um, uh, watching Wayne's World and then talking about it. But maybe we should oh, do yeah. it. I think we'll probably have to do it remotely from each other. So start it playing at the same time. <laughs> and then um, and then talk about it. Because uh, it really warrants a commentary from us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it does. And it, well, I mean, if we found a way of doing that in person, that would be truly awesome. It would be good, but I'm not sure when we're going to find the time to do that. Yeah. Also, I haven't drunk for like four months, and I think probably I ought to have a drink to do that. I think we, yeah. Although, would that just be tiresome? Right. Although, that was a disaster. Wouldn't that just time. turn into our most listened to episode <laughs> ever? <laughs> yeah. I haven't checked whether that's still our most listened to episode ever. I can't believe it is. And, I, and why would it? Why is it? It must be because people accidentally clicked on it, presumably. Because it's a train. It's a train wreck, and people love a train wreck. Or it could be that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be. Is that it? Is that is that <laughs> that's it? That's gotta be it. Yeah. That's far too much. We apologise, listener, yet again. Thank you very but, much. Um, uh, we probably. I don't think we'll be doing another one before before the Christmas break. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I would like to wish listener a happy Christmas, and if you don't do Christmas, then have a nice break at Christmas. Yeah, yeah, have a lovely time, and if you love Christmas like me, then fantastic, and if Christmas is a horrible time for you, then uh, we're sending you our love. We are, our love and support, uh, because, you know, I think that uh, I think that December and Christmas can be a tough time for some people. We're so, I'm saying that I understand that. Look after yourself. Yeah, do. Yeah. Bye. We'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.